This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This podcast episode was made possible in part with support from Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation-funded project hosted by Northeastern University that promotes public scholarship on religion. I highly recommend you learn more about Sacred Rights on their website, sacred-rights.org, that's W. R-I-T-E-S, or find Sacred Rights on Twitter at sacred underscore rights. Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. When you think of the term magic, what springs to mind? The study of magic in the field of religious studies is capturing my attention of late, and the conversations I get to have on the topic are a sheer delight. I'm so excited to discuss ancient magic and early Christianity on this episode, and my guest is Dr. Shaley Patel. Shaley Patel is Assistant Professor of Early Christianity at Virginia Tech, She is an expert on ancient magic, early Christian literature, and ideological criticisms of the New Testament. She is currently writing a book about the ways in which early Christian writings featuring Simon Peter are caught between two simultaneous but opposing cultural trends, the allure of magic in the Roman imagination and the categorical vilifying of magicians among ancient writers. In her wider work, she is concerned with the problem of representation in historical accounts, especially the representation of groups and ideas that challenge established orthodoxy. On this episode, we discuss the origin of her scholarly interests in magic and early Christianity, her public scholarship work with sacred rites, the upcoming book project that she is working on, and much, much more. You can find Dr. Shaley Patel on Twitter at Vox underscore Magica. You can follow me on Twitter at Classical underscore Ideas. And without further delay, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Shaley Patel. Dr. Shaley Patel, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It is a delight to have you here, Dr. Patel. Um, I'm wondering if we can start off by having you introduce yourself to the audience, uh, however you see fit. Sure. Um, I'm Shaley Patel. I currently work as Assistant Professor of Early Christianity at Virginia Tech. I have a PhD in ancient Mediterranean religions. Um, I like to think of myself as a scholar of discourses, the way that we talk about critical concepts. And most of my time is spent thinking about the ways that, um, well, the various ways that early Christians talked about magic in Mm. the ancient world. So really I'm looking at how Christian writers talk about magicians and also magical practices and what that means for how they define Christianity. 
Interesting. Okay, well, you have such an interesting array of scholarly interests that I was enjoying reading about on the Sacred Rights bio um, and within some of your work that I've been reading, within some interviews that you've done um, in the press. And I'm curious about the backstory a little bit behind each of your areas of interest. You know, you study ancient magic, early Christianity, like to outside observers, like this is a really fascinating combination, at least it is to me. So hopefully people <laughs> share my, my geekdom with this, but I find, I, hope so. be, I find that to be such an interesting combination. Did you become interested in those separately? Did they, um, you know, did you get interested in religion at one point and early Christianity at one point and then come to find magic another way? And then I'm so I'm curious what the backstory behind each of these specific interests in in uh, in scholarly work. Yeah, so um, to be kind of honest, it's it's really hard to tell when um, it, precisely when my interests developed. Part of it is really personal, actually. Um, I grew up Hindu in the heart of Appalachia, and so I have um, some experience with um, the ways in which non-Western religious traditions are delegitimized um, or considered barbaric or superstitious, primitive, which is probably why I was uh, drawn to magic. Um, I also grew up in the 90s, right? Like uh, during the satanic panic. Mm -hmm. And so, right, right. Yeah. So you had this, this popular discourse of, you know, illegitimate religion or illegitimate practices. And being sort of Hindu in, in the Bible Belt, like that resonated with me. Um, so I, I, was, I was always interested in that. And then um, I didn't really get started on Christianity until I went to college. And I went to Wake Forest University, which is used to be affiliated with the uh, Southern Baptist Convention. And so by the time I got to Wake, we still had like remnants of that legacy. And one of the remnants is that you have to take a religion class or that was part of our core curriculum. And like, I didn't care. I didn't want to take a religion class. I was like, dude, I'm here to go to law school. Like, you know, like let me sign me up for the politics classes. And I ended up taking um, a course on the gospels with Mary Foskett, who still teaches there and who is awesome. Mm. Um, and the first thing I sort of learned in that class was there's not one gospel, like no brainer, right? But like we think of Christianity as like this one story, this one meta narrative. And one of the first things I learned was that Christianity is not one thing. And even in the, the New Testament text, we have four very distinct visions of Christianity. And also Christianity is weird. Mm. Like it's delightfully, wonderfully weird. And so it, again, it aligned with my interests in really weird religious stuff, right? Excellent. Well, so you did, did, was that in an undergrad years that you started becoming interested in Christianity or was that like later on? Like, what is the time frame here? Um, so that was my undergrad. Um, so, yeah. Okay, cool. So what is the interest in in magic then where does that come into play how does that that solidify within your areas of interest so i think what happened is you know i started i started working on christianity in undergrad um and then i decided you know i really like this stuff it's delightful it's weird it's fun um i like the ancient world i wanted to nerd out a bit and so um you know i went to grad school 
lots of times. <laughs> um, and so part of my area of study in grad school was magic. Um, one of my advisors at Chicago wrote a book on magic. Um, and so this was just because I'd been so interested in practices that were delegitimized when I was younger, it just seemed a sort of natural fit that um, I would also be interested in magic once I started thinking about the ancient world or studying the ancient world. Excellent. Well, I know that you're at Virginia Tech um, and you're assistant professor of early Christianity down there. And whenever I say down there, I mean, because I'm up in Buffalo. So like, we're like <laughs> geographically, I'm saying down as in South of me and yeah. into the East. But anyway, um, so these interests that you have within early Christianity and magic um, and, you know, your, your job in the early years of your academic career, all of these interests, you know, sort of converge and lead you to this moment where you are also a cohort member of the 2020 cohort of sacred rights, a fantastic cohort of religion scholars seeking, yeah, yeah. seeking to get like the discussions <laughs> of religion and like the public um, into like public scholarship, which is exactly what I do. It's like my favorite thing. That's right. So tell me a little bit about why you applied to this particular fellowship and what sorts of skills you feel you are adding to your scholarly toolbox at, at, at the moment, if you will. Yeah, okay, so don't tell anybody at Sacred Rights, but I apply because everybody is awesome. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, I had spent the, the first few years of my job sort of watching people affiliated with Sacred Rights, watching the leadership team on Twitter, watching them put out really, really amazing public scholarship. I mean, I'm talking like public scholarship that my parents could read and be like, oh, I get that now, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so a lot of it was just, I really like working with awesome people <laughs> mm -hmm. who does it, right? And sacred rights just seems to have a critical mass of awesome people. And so I was like, oh, I wanna apply to this thing. Um, so that was one reason is just, I wanted to be around cool people who doesn't. Um, the other reason is that, you know, I really wanted to think about the ways in which we can translate ancient world stuff for modern audiences, which is something that I know you care a lot about. Absolutely. Um, and it was something that, you know, I was actually having a hard time with, right? Like, because I could do it in my classrooms. I could be like, here's why you should, you should care about this. And my students would be like, yeah, I should care about this. Um, but I was having trouble like translating that for a wider audience. And so I thought, okay, this, if this is my trouble, right? here is a program that is specifically designed to help. Totally. Um, so that's, that's a lot of why I, why I applied. Um, and it's been awesome. Like I've learned a lot. One of the things that I've learned is just how to be clearer as a writer. And so this has been helpful for like, you know, work that's more academic too, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, writing clearly is a skill, full stop, right? So, um, so that's been great. You know, we've learned, I've learned how to pitch to editors. Um, I've learned, you know, how to make my work cool and interesting and fun so that like the stuff that I nerd out about, I can get other people to nerd out about, mm. right? Um, and have them have the same enthusiasm that I do. Fabulous. I mean, that all it's just- It's been fun. I, I love it so much. Um, 
So I know that you also have a book manuscript in the works, and I'm, I'd imagine that some of this writing clearly exercises that you've been working on are probably going to come through a lot of ways in, in your book as well, I would imagine. I'd ima- like we certainly come- hope so. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, you know, you, you have a book coming out on the topic specifically regarding the allure of magic in the Roman imagination and the vilifying of magicians among ancient writers. And this is so fascinating to me, and I want to dive more into this in a little while, but um, I know the book is still like in development, but maybe you want to give people out there listening, people in the field, people outside the field, a little bit of a preview of the premise for your book project, how it's going and what people can look forward to. Ooh, can I give a spoiler alert? Totally. Spoiler alert. Yes. So I'm just going to spoil the book. <laughs> do it. Um, yeah. Yeah. We should just do it. So what I really am trying to argue is that magic is essential to the formation of Christianity. And I don't mean that in a vague sort of like, well, it was part of the Roman religious background sort of way. I mean that in that it helps form critical Christian concepts. So things like apostolic succession. And I'm getting a lot of help from the latest scholarship in things like um, self-fashioning or creating identity through practices of writing. So what we see in Christian texts is authors trying to develop their own ideas of who Jesus is or who Peter is or what Christianity is. And they have problems, right? Um, Because there is a whole class of ritual specialists out there. Um, So Heidi Went just put out this book at the Temple Gates, which is fantastic. Um, And she calls this class of specialists freelance religious specialists. And so there's this whole class of people who are offering things like exorcisms or healings, um, but they offer also offer things like scriptural interpretation or philosophical discussion. And from what we can gather, these freelancers were actually pretty popular. That made the Roman literary elite pretty nervous. So they were anxious about this. And What happens is that in our literary text, these writers start looking for ways to sort of distance, create distance between, you know, legitimate forms of ritual practice and these, the forms that they think these freelancers are practicing, right? And in my mind, Christian texts are probably engaging in the same literary practices because Christianity is a Roman religion. Christian literature is Roman literature, right? So it makes sense to me that they would adopt these same practices. And the problem is that Christian protagonists like Jesus or Peter did things like healings or exorcisms or raising people from the dead. And it looked like the sort of things that magicians stereo or magicians are stereotyped as doing. What our Christian writers do is to overwrite these practices that um, make their protagonists look like they're doing magic with things like ideas of messiahship or apostolic leadership or moral reformation to sort of give their protagonists this edge. Mm. And so if we're talking about something like apostolic leadership, then I think we need to start with the fact that Christian writers develop something like apostolic leadership in response to these real or even perceived threats from freelance specialists, right? Excellent. Well, you know, I have a lot of questions about like these basic concepts as well, because 
from reading your book, I can tell that there are some, maybe some modern misinterpretations about magic that we need to know as, um, you know, people in the year 2021 going forward about the context within your work, because you're working in such early days, early in the early centuries of Christianity's development. And a word that I question that I found myself wondering today is, um, about the term magic itself. Is there any like interesting knowledge of the etymology behind the word magic that you would like to share with listeners in relation to your work specifically? I think the scholarly consensus is that the word um, comes to us from the Persian. Um, it's imported into the Greek from the Persian. In the Persian, um, magi means something of a sort of priestly figure. Um, and there's, you know, a sort of what sometimes gets referred to in scholarship as a high magical tradition. Um, when the word comes into the Greek, as you know, when things get imported into other languages, other contexts, they shift in meaning. And so it gets imported into the Greek and then um, it starts meaning all sorts of things, right? And so there is this tradition of, you know, magic as not necessarily a negative thing, um, but you also get literary references to magicians as kind of like, you know, greedy slime balls too, mm. right? And then mm -hmm. you also, you also get a lot of other words that are also associated with um, magic um, or magician, you know, words that we might translate into sorcerer or activities like love spells or something like that. Um, so you just have like this group of words that refers to all of these activities. And so part of the problem of studying magic is like, what counts, right? Um, how, do you, how do you make that decision in terms of what you're gonna count in any analysis of magic? Interesting. Well, I'm also curious about how modern preconception of magic work against or with what you do in your field, like what are some modern preconceptions um, and how are they like, how do they get in the way of what you do? Does that make sense? Yeah, um, yeah. And so this is like the big scholarly argument. <laughs> like this is the, you just opened like this massive can of worms, like. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. Yes, um, so, okay. So let me, let me try to make sense of this for myself. Um, we do have, like, if, if you were just to hear magic, right? Like, we do have modern preconceptions of magic. Um, and unfortunately, like, a lot of our modern preconceptions come from a kind of imperialist history, right? Where, oh, yeah. right, where we have people like Malinowski or like Frazier or Durkheim, and they're like separating magic from religion and religion always means Christianity, right? It can't mean mm -hmm. anything else. It just means Christianity. And so magic becomes this sphere of practice that's set apart from Christianity and is also negatively evaluated, right? Like magic is what we apply to, um, you know, non-Western traditions. Magic is what we apply to things like superstition, which itself is a kind of loaded word. And so, all of that conceptual baggage is there um, because, you know, like I said, like how do you decide what counts as magic? Well, for a lot of people, they have this idea of 
magic is X, right? Or magic is, you know, communing with demons. And so when they go and look for magic in the ancient world, they're gonna look for places where people commune with demons, right? And say, mm. okay, this is magic. So we do import this particular imperialist idea of magic into the study of ancient magic. Interesting. Well, and I was reading one of your pieces today and I saw a, a phrase pop up called that said reconstructing magic within your work. And I'm wondering if you can say what that means and how your area of the field is, is, is doing this to reconstruct magic within the early Christianity studies. Yeah, so I try to be very deliberate about saying that we're reconstructing magic as opposed to defining magic. Mm -hmm. um, because for me, definitions um, are kind of an exercise in essentialism, right? Um, so if I define something, that's what it is. I don't know that we could get at what ancient magic was. I think we can get at how people talked about ancient magic, or at least I think that's the easier thing to get at. And so when I say something like reconstructing magic, um, I want to be clear that that is a scholarly endeavor, right? It is an act of historical excavation. It's an act of putting together what we know based on the evidence that we have. Um, so it is, you know, at its core, it's a, a secondary category, right? So, I wanted to be clear that that's what we were doing as opposed to defining magic. Excellent. Well, and you just said the words excavating and evidence. And this is something that I find really fascinating as well, because you're working with, uh, you know, ideas and stories and histories that are so old at this point that I'm curious about what you do. Like within your work, you refer to physical sources, you refer to literary sources and I want to know a little bit more about what sorts of sources you and your colleagues work with when examining such ancient information on such a mysterious topic. Yeah, I mean, so the sources are fragmentary, right? This is one of the things that really upsets my students, because a lot of times we have to say, like, we don't know, yeah. <laughs> right? Like, the That's honest answer, answer is, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... The sources are fragmentary, sometimes they're contradictory. So we do have things like amulets. We have things like incantation bowls. We have really cool curse tablets. Um, we have magical spell books. And I say magical spell books in scare quotes because we scholars have called them magical, right? Mm. Um, so we've decided that this evidence is somehow evidence of magic and so we use it to to reconstruct magic, as it were. Mm. Well, and I'm also curious about uh, how these things are used. So if you, you just listed some items, uh, some books, perhaps, how were these used uh, back in the, the time periods in which you are like studying? Like, do you, do you know of any particular ways that they were used practically uh, in day to day life for people? We have um, formulas for things, for everyday things from headaches, right, to, I kid you not, riding on the back of a crocodile across the Nile. So Wonderful. if you ever wanted to do that, there's a, there's a spell for that. Right? Okay. Uh, so, you know, 
what's really cool about these things is that they are part and parcel of like the everyday lives of people. And we tend to think of them or we tend to think of magic as a sort of extraordinary thing, right? But like people are using these things to, things like spells or amulets um, to, to cure headaches, right? Or to protect them from illness. Um, so it does become like, the trappings of what we might think is magic is a kind of strategy for managing an unmanageable world. Mm -hmm. Well, and I also like the idea of the fragmentary sources because I would imagine that what that forces you and your colleagues to do is talk to each other a lot about some methodological problems that might exist in the field. Um, how do you find yourselves navigating such challenges? Like I'm thinking about like the fragmentary nature of the Epic of Gilgamesh, right? And the many, many years that of work that goes into reconstructing like the stories found in these ancient tablets. How do you and the, your colleagues interested in this stuff work together in order to move the field forward? So I think that there's, um, the classicists are doing really, really great work in terms of just being very rigorous about interdisciplinarity. So, um, you know, David Frankfurter edited this massive guide to the study of ancient magic. Um, and I think it's a very, very useful resource for anybody who, who's interested in ancient magic. And one of the things um, that he does as editor of that volume is he brings together people who have expertise in material evidence. So things like amulets, um, spell books and formularies, you know, incantation bowls, curse tablets, and he has them to a very rigorous sort of historical contextualization. Um, how are these things used? What are the contexts in which we find them? What do we know about them? What don't we know about them? Because that's just as important. And then he places the analysis of these material objects alongside, you know, references to magic in literary evidence and how writers are using magic and also how we might understand magic in various ways. So, you know, there's uh, the third section of that volume is talking about the, the multiple ways in which we can use magic as a kind of scholarly category, right? Magic as the quality of something, um, magic as a sort of, you know, a big tradition that's applied locally. So I think, you know, the most exciting work for me is this kind of work um, that is intentionally interdisciplinary and that is as critical about what we don't know as it is about what we do know. Mm. I love the examples that you've offered so far, like the texts, the, the spell books, the incantation bowls, archaeological artifacts like amulets. And I'm wondering if these were indicative of quote unquote magic at the time. Like, did the people using such items consider themselves magicians at the time? So we don't know. Mm. <laughs> um, I think what has happened in, um, in scholarship is that we tend to take these artifacts as a kind of de facto evidence for magic because again, right, like scholars, we call them the papyri that, um, that have come down to us where these spells have come down to us. 
we've actually termed them the magical papyri, but that's a modern scholarly term, right? Um, these are collections that we've made. Um, and these are categorizations that we've made. So it's really difficult to say, okay, there is um, the people who used cursed tablets were magicians or the people who prepared cursed tablets were magicians um, because we simply just don't know. There are like, there are like tantalizing hints um, in something like the papyri where you know, the papyri will talk about the magical soul of the user or something like that. But, you know, it's really hard to say that this one particular spell is indicative of magic on the ground. Um, and magic on the ground, like in all of the ancient Mediterranean too, right? Like not just the particular historical context of this papyrus. Yeah. And so, yeah, so that's been, that's been <laughs> one of the things that we've been doing. And again, like, you know, David Frankfurter has done a lot of work to sort of say, hey, you know, maybe we should be a little more critical about how we're categorizing these things. Oh, I love it. Well, and since you are a scholar of early Christianity, I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the Bible um, dun, dun, dun. in some way, you know, uh, I'm curious if there are any applicable biblical passages or uh, stories within the Bible that, you know, really get at the heart of what it is that you write about. Like, are there any like specific books that you would direct people towards if they wanted to see what you're talking about in practice in the Bible that everybody can pick up and read for themselves today? One of my favorite examples is the story of Simon the Samaritan in Acts 8. So within Acts 8, we have Simon the Samaritan who dazzles the Samaritans with his magic, and the text calls it magic. And then we have Philip who comes along and dazzles the Samaritans with his signs and wonders, not called magic, but essentially like the two characters are paralleled in that text, right? And so this is one of the places in which you can see the author making this sort of distinction and creating this category of signs that is something that the author sets apart from magic, right? And so, um, yeah, I really like that story. Incidentally, a lot of scholars read that story and they actually, again, retroject what we think of as magic onto the text. So as a lot of people know, we get um, simony from that text, right? The, the practice of buying religious office. So Simon tries to buy the, the power to confer the Holy Spirit from Peter. And what scholars tend to say is that the problem here is that Simon is trying to purchase power and the buying and selling of supernatural power is something that magicians do, right? Good Christian wonder workers don't do that. But to me, the text, but, so we're starting with the presupposition that magic equals greed, right? Mm. And so when we see Simon purchasing or trying to purchase the power to confer the Holy Spirit, we're thinking, oh, he's being greedy. Except Simon never says he's then going to turn around and sell that power or make any money off of it or anything like that. 
And in fact, the Greek is that he's trying to purchase authority, not power, right? Mm. And so, you know, if, we, if we're just a little more careful and if we, you know, sort of think to ourselves, okay, what are the presuppositions of magic that I'm bringing into the text? Then I think we can see other resonances for the stories that we think we know a lot about. Wonderful. Um, I'm curious if, you know, Christian uh, leaders or authorities over the centuries, if they have edited any work over time to shy away from usage of the term magic, has that been sort of like brushed under the rug at all over the centuries or has it been embraced? Um, So I think that there is, I think there's a kind of um, a movement to overwrite um, this notion of Christian protagonists like Jesus or Peter actually doing magic, right? So what our writers do is give these activities that might be confused for magic, um, give them another spin, right? So like, you know, exorcisms are not about exorcism. They're now about showing you that the kingdom of God is coming in Mm. Luke's gospel. Or, you know, healings are not just about healings anymore. They're about moral reformation, if you look at somebody like Origin of Alexandria. And so what, and I'm not saying that Christian writers are the only ones doing this. We see this kind of differentiation in, um, you know, Roman texts more broadly. If you look at somebody like Apuleius, for example, when he writes the Apology, he makes certain distinctions between what he's doing as a philosopher and magic, right? Um, But What is interesting about Christian texts is that the distinctions that our early Christian writers are making, you know, things like moral reformation, things like community building, apostolic succession, these are all the things that end up becoming religion in the modern world. Um, So those moves, I think, are really relevant for, for modern notions of religion. Interesting. I'm curious uh, if there are any ideas that you're exploring for how magic is being rehabilitated in early Christianity? Like, are these ideas from like the time period you're studying being rehabilitated in the modern era to, you know, make more sense or something? Did I say that right? Yeah. I mean, so I use that term. Um, and when I use that term, I mean it in two ways. One is a question, like, can we rehabilitate the scholarly category of magic given all the imperialist baggage that it has. And that's a real question, right? Like scholars are going back and forth on that. Um, There is a very robust scholarly discussion about whether or not we could even use the term because it's so conceptually fraught. So that's one sort of um, angle that I'm going at is if we're going to rehabilitate this critical concept, how can we do that as scholars? But the other thing that I'm trying to get at when I say rehabilitating magic is that I really do think that um, you know Christianity is indebted to this legacy of Greco-Roman magic. And so for us to understand Christianity, we do have to rehabilitate this notion that Christianity and magic are not two separate things. Um, mm. that, the, that Christianity is, you know, in part at least magical, right? Mm, I love that. Well, and I, I was, um, I yeah, and you know, I was, I was delighted because you sent me a few things a few weeks back where you sent me an interview that you did with the Daily Beast called "Was Jesus a Wizard," and this was 
so fun of a read for me. And yeah, props just, to Candida Moss who wrote that. Yeah, <laughs> I loved it. Well, you know, all yeah. of this sort of resonates with me actually, um, considering the secretive nature of like Jesus's actions, like the Gospel of Mark, where he's like, "Oh my God." He's so secretive and he's yeah. performing miracles, but he demands that nobody tell anybody. And, <laughs> you know, this is just like, when I saw, was Jesus a wizard? I was like, oh, secret of Jesus and gospel of Mark. And, you know, I'm curious if you can talk to me about this overlooked history of claims that Jesus may be the most famous wizard in history. Yeah. First of all, I have to say, I love Mark's Jesus. Yeah, me too. He's I my favorite. Him. I love it. He is. Yeah. Yeah. He's just angry and he's cranky and like, He's telling people like, I'm going to do this exorcism and I'm going to raise this person from the dead, but don't tell anybody yeah. like that's going to work. This right. Like, of course people are going to tell, what are you thinking? Um, so there is, there are charges against Jesus of being a magician. We have lots of, you know, Christian sources who actually have to insulate or defend Jesus against the charge of being a magician. One of the most famous is this argument between um, the philosopher, the Roman philosopher Celsus, who reads about Christianity, reads about Jesus, and is like, this dude is a magician. And so he writes about how Jesus is a magician. And then like years and years later, Origin of Alexandria, a very, um, a very famous church father, sort of reads what Celsus had written about Jesus and then writes an entire work refuting this mm. um, because... For him, Jesus was not a magician. And so, you know, this conversation between Celsus and Origen, I call it a conversation, but really, you know, Celsus wrote, and then like a hundred and some years later, Origen <laughs> takes it up. So it's not a conversation, really. Um, but yeah, so like this, 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 I guess, you know, discussion or whatever you want to call it, right? These these two discourses that are that are operative in these two texts, they they're really fascinating for me, right? Because you see the ways in which Origen has to distance Jesus from magic. And you see the sorts of, you know, things that he has to do. So like, he wants to say, yes, Jesus and Christian wonder workers have this amazing power to do things like exorcisms and healings. Like he wants to preserve that part of the tradition, right? Mm -hmm. But he doesn't want them to be confused with like the marketplace dude who's going to sell you an exorcism. And so he's making all of these, you know, all of these claims. And he's like, yeah, sure. Magical names work. The name of Jesus will work if you want to do an exorcism. But like, just remember that like, it's because Jesus is Jesus that this name works, right? And mm. Christian exorcisms are different. We're going to save your soul, right? And so we do have these authors that have to make these, um, you know, literary interventions so that, you know, in order to redirect the ways in which people perceive Jesus and the apostles. And so we hmm. see that. We have healing stories, stories of flight, stories of resurrection, like, are these kinds of stories that might be magical in nature that are associated with Christianity, do these stories occur in other cultures oh, from the yeah, ancient world also? Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the first things that um, I talk to my students about, right, is because they think that, like, the 
the stories that we have in the New Testament, the miracle stories is what they call them, right? The miracle stories are unique to Jesus and they're not, right? We have mm. figures in the ancient world we who did very similar things, right? So Apollonius of Tiana is one that every Christmas or every now and then makes the rounds in popular media because you have those people who are like, no, 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 the gospels are all based on the Apollonius um, biography, right? So you have that come around every every so many years. Um, but you know, you could see why they're trying to make this argument. It's because if you read the life of Apollonius, it reads like a gospel. Mm. So Apollonius, you know, can exercise demons. Apollonius can heal people. Apollonius raises people from the dead. It's a later text. Um, so we actually think that the Apollonius text is um, dependent upon the gospels, but it is tapping into this larger tradition of these sort of miracle working people in the ancient world. One of my favorite texts is um, Apuleius's Apology. So Apuleius um, is second century and he is, he calls himself a philosopher. Um, he gets pulled up on charges of doing deeds of magic. Specifically, he seduced his wife with a love spell, right? Mm. She was very rich. And so Apuleius is accused of of sort of winning her hand in marriage through this love spell. And we have this text called the Apology, which is supposedly a record of his speech in defense of himself in court, right? And in that speech, he makes all of these fantastic sort of, again, negotiations between what's magic, what's not magic, what's philosophy, what's not philosophy. Um, and in that speech, you can see some of the things that he's accused of and, you know, again, right, like there, there are plenty of people in the ancient world who are accused of doing these special, extraordinary things. Mm. And so Jesus is not unique. I love it because, you know, I'm always curious to see ways that cultures inspire the storytelling within other cultures because examples of that are just rampant throughout history of ways that we inspire each other um, across cultures and languages and all the different barriers that humans have between each other. It's yeah. so cool. Uh, I love like seeing those little random connections. It makes me happy. Yeah. Well, and it's important. I think it's important for, um, you know, studying Christianity specifically because we like to think of Christianity as somehow transcendent of culture in a mm. way. And um, so a lot of my work is really just contextualizing Christianity within this Roman landscape of ritual practice and saying, look, it is a Roman religion. And that means that it's going to have affinities with Roman religions or Roman traditions, Roman philosophy, Roman rituals. I love it. Well, and you know, and something else that I noticed that you cited several times throughout some of your work is uh, Morton Smith a 1978 yeah. book called Jesus the Magician. I see that pop up in a few places and things that you've that you've written. And I really enjoyed some thoughtful phrasing of Jesus's ministry as wonder working, which Smith wrote in 78 in that book. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like, where has the field gone from there since Smith wrote that in 1978? Like, what is the path of scholarship like within academia for beginning to take these types of questions into consideration? Like, how is this field growing and developing in, you know, the past, like, uh, quarter century and then, like, into the future? 
yeah, I think it's a really cool time to be studying magic right now. Um, awesome. I think we're seeing, yeah, there is, there's been a very recent resurgence of interest in the subject, um, particularly a kind of interdisciplinary interest, which is nice because, you know, I do think, and this may be like a personal pet peeve of mine, is that early Christianity specialists and classicists don't always talk Mm. Um, to each other and I think magic is one of those places where like we would learn a lot from one another if we we spent more time talking to each other but to get back to your question like will analysts of early Christianity who work on magic ever exercise the ghost of Morton Smith <laughs> I don't know <laughs> um, so if you read <laughs> if you read treatments of magic in early Christianity like inevitably we're going to cite smith right like everybody does it um you know everybody does it and we're sort of we all also agree that smith's thesis doesn't hold Mm. so he argued that the historical jesus was a magician like jesus was really 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 a magician and our gospel writers tried to hide that in various ways but their cover job was incomplete. And so we get all these charges or these accusations of magic against Jesus. And scholars have been pretty clear that like what Morton Smith decided was magic was what Morton Smith decided was magic, right? Mm -hmm. Again, we run into this sort of circular logic of magic is what the scholar says it is. And then the scholar takes this idea of magic and applies it to the ancient world. And you know, Morton Smith applied it to the ancient world and was like, you know, Jesus is a magician. Um, and of course, he upset a lot of people. <laughs> um, but since then, um, the sort of the ways of understanding magic, at least on the early Christianity side of things, is that magic is this rhetorical charge that you um, levy against ritual practices that you don't like. So it's a way of creating insiders and delineating who's an outsider, right? Um, And that paradigm has been the dominant paradigm for a really long time. And I think it's just now changing. Um, And we're just now beginning to integrate some of these newer ideas that are coming out of classics. Um, Some of these interdisciplinary ideas about, okay, well, let's talk about how literary texts define themselves or fashion the self. Um, let's talk about ways in which ritual specialists are differentiated. So again, it's a really exciting time um, because I think you know we're discovering new things. We're thinking about new, more robust ways to think about magic. We're realizing that you don't necessarily just need one scholarly paradigm for understanding magic. Like you can have a polyvalent understanding of magic as a scholar um, and that's okay, right? Like, again, our sources are fragmentary, they're inconsistent, they're contradictory at times. Like we can't expect perfect consistency. It doesn't make sense that we would have just this one notion, one scholarly idea of what magic is. I love it. Well, you know, and something else I'm really interested in is like, as we talked about earlier, since you joined the sacred rights cohort, you are interested in getting these ideas disseminated out into the broader public, which is obviously fantastic. Um, 
And I'm thinking about a specific group of people right now, and that would be Christians Alive in the year 2021. Um, And I'm curious if you can, you know, in your view, say why you think these types of questions are important for modern day Christians to consider. Like if you were, you know, talking to, um, you know, large groups of Christians in the world, like, hey, this is what I study and here's why I think you should know about it. What would you say? Um, I think it's, well, I think it's important for everybody to sort of wrestle with these questions because again, ultimately the heart of what I'm trying to get at is to say, we cannot think of religion as something that transcends culture. Um, And we certainly can't think of Christianity as something that transcends culture. And in fact, it has always been the case that Christianity is culturally contingent and contested. And, you know, it's not one thing. It's a lot of different things. And in different cultural contexts, it's going to take on different forms. And so what I'm trying to disrupt, if you will, is this notion of this pure original form of Christianity that existed and that transcends history and transcends culture. And so the study of magic is one way in which we can say, no, you know, Christianity really is dependent upon the Roman ritual context. Mm. Um, And so this is one area where we see it, you know, my colleagues could give you lots of other areas where we could see it too, but it is important, right? Um, Because it's it's really important to think of, you know, keeping it 101 would say religion is what people do, right? Yeah. So the Christianity is what people do. And when we lose sight of that, it can lead to very awful things. I love it. Well, Dr. Shilly Patel, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you. I had so much fun. I, I've learned so much. And before we go, I'm wondering if you can just tell people where they can find you find your work, follow you, et cetera, if they want to know more about what you're doing and, uh, you know, keep in touch from here on out. Sure. Um, so I do have a website, uh, at the, uh, at Virginia tech. So the Virginia tech department of religion and culture has a webpage, but really you should just get after me on Twitter. My handle is Vox Magica, of course. Um, and so you should, you know, you should follow me on Twitter. I talk about all sorts of things. Yeah, your Twitter is fantastic. And I've been so glad Thank that you. I've been following it. Like the, I've been following it throughout this entire pandemic. And I have- I'm so random. I love it. I love it because, well, it keeps it fun. You know, it keeps it light. It keeps it engaging. And it's one of, you know, you're one of my favorite Twitter follows right now. Oh, you're one of my favorites too. Yay. Well, I hope people will Yay. go and find you. But um, Dr. Shelley Patel, thank you so much for hanging out with me, for spending time to talk about thank your you. work and coming on Classical Ideas and nerd now with me on everything that you do. It's yeah, been, of course. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. Support for this episode of Classical Ideas was provided by Sacred Rights, a Henry Luce Foundation project. Explore the work of Sacred Rights at sacred-rights.org.